How many of you have ever made a promise to somebody else? Right? And how many of you have made a promise before and have broke that promise? Is there anybody in here that's made a promise that's not broken it? Ever? Okay, a couple of you. My guess is we probably should have a conversation about truth-telling, but you know, whatever. (laughs) The reality is most of us, at some point, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, know what it's like to have made a promise and have broken it, right? Here's the problem we have at times as humans. At least this has been my experience. If you make a promise to someone... And you break a promise to someone, the next time they make a promise to you, you have a hard time believe, a harder time believing in that promise. Is that not true? Right? Even though we say or we may actually forgive the person for their failure to keep the promise, the residual effect of trying to believe them when they make the next promise becomes exponentially harder because you don't haven't forgotten that they broke the first one. Is that true? Right? I mean, think about, think about your teenagers. If you can remember raising them or being one, right? How many times has your child made, I promise mom, I promise dad, and then they break the promise. And then we move past it, and then the next thing comes, I promise, Mom, I promise, Dad. And as much as you want to, as much as you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and as much as you want to get on the I promise train, there's a part of you that goes, eh, right? I'm going to have to wait and see. How about when you're just in a relationship with somebody, dating them, or married to them, and we make a promise, and we break a promise, And then the next time we make a promise, the person we make it to hesitates to believe it. And then the person who makes the promise the second time is offended. Why why aren't you, why don't you believe me? And then we get into a fight and then we end up in counseling, right? And the reality is, is that what happens with us as humans is that We make promises and we break promises. Sometimes we mean to, sometimes we don't. And the unintended consequences of breaking promises to each other creates in us a doubt to believe the next promise we get from maybe that person or just another person in general. Because I've been burned. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. Right? People have made promises to me in the past and I've believed them and they didn't come through. So now I'm hesitant to trust you. I'm hesitant to believe you. Is this, is this ringing a bell with anybody? Right? It happens all the time. So then the person who's made the promise develops x-ray vision when it comes to watching whether you believe whether you're being believed when you make a promise. Listen, I've been married for 30 plus years and I've raised five children. I have made and broke promises across the landscape of my 30 years of marriage and raising a family, right? Some of them were, were inadvertently intentional and some of them were intentional. 
right? The hardest part about having a relationship where you've got 30 years of history with people, right? People who can't forget, but say they forgive, is that every subsequent promise is tainted by that failure, right? And that is a, listen, that is a difficult thing to deal with, right? And here's what you know. Here's what you know. When the person hesitates to believe your promise because of whatever, from 30 years of life, 10 years of life, whatever, you immediately pick up on that. You immediately can tell they don't, they don't, they don't believe me. They don't believe me, right? So you start looking and you start sensing for the evidence in people whether they're going to believe you or not. And that's a dangerous thing. Because at the end of the day, this is just to me an unavoidable truth. If I make a promise to you and you tell me you believe me and my promise, there will be tangible evidence that you actually believe in my promise. You see, words aren't enough. We all know that, right? I love you. And then we go and do something completely unloving, right? Right? We say that I forgive you. And then 10 years later, we're back at the same argument because we never actually let it go and moved on, right? Words, words can be empty at times. Would you agree with that church? Actions are a little harder to uh, ignore. So when you say to somebody, I promise I'll do this, the person who's left to believe in your promise produces what I believe are tangible proofs that I actually do believe in your promise, right? And I think that for those of us who've been through the process of making promises, breaking promises, realizing the unattended consequences of breaking people's ability to completely trust in you, we then direct that toward our relationship with the Heavenly Father who has given us a book full of nothing but promises. And we wonder why as human beings we have a hard time believing it. It's not complicated to know why we have a hard time believing it because we've been trained by people, parents, teachers, coaches, friends, right? Relationships, we've been, we've been conditioned by people to, who make promises and break them. So God makes all these great promises and we then as people who've been broken, who've been lied to, who've been disappointed, have a hard time getting behind that 100%. And so we waver and we doubt and we struggle. But the reality is everything we have in God depends on a promise. Because if God can't keep a promise, then he just can't be a God. And he certainly can't be your God. Everything we have in our relationship to God is built on a promise. God made promises to you. They're right here in this book. The question is, do you believe in those promises? And my response is, if you say you do, there has to be, should be, and will be tangible evidence that you actually believe in those promises. Right? How many of you hold the door like you, like sometimes you'll walk up to a restaurant, a gas station or whatever, and, and you notice there's a person behind you, right? And you decide to hold the door open for that person, especially during COVID, because you'll take the hit and hold the dirty door so they don't have to touch it, right? 
And how many of you have experienced this when you're holding the door? This drives me crazy, right? I got to stand up for this, right? You hold the door open for somebody. And as they come through the door that you're holding, they're also holding the door as they go through because they're not certain you're going to what? Keep holding the door, right? Those people have some serious trust issues, right? That makes me crazy. Because here I am standing, taking a potential COVID hit for you. And your response to my generosity is to doubt the veracity of my ability to hold the door open for you. So you slide through it by keeping your hand on it just in case I forget to keep it open. Anybody? Right? Makes me crazy. Right? Listen, that's exactly what we do. When it comes to our relationship with God at times, God makes these wonderful and great promises. And we're the kind of people that based upon our history and based upon our past and based upon multiple failures of human beings to keep their promises. Some of them so awful and hurtful that you're still dealing with the consequences. Some of them minuscule and unimportant. And yet you've made a mountain out of a molehill. We're the kind of people that slide through God's promises often with our hand on the door saying the whole time, I believe you got this. But do we really? Do we really believe it? Because I think there's evidences that point us to that. Fast forward or backtrack to the book of Nehemiah. We're talking about rebuilding, right? We live in a, we, we, we live in a world that at some levels got to be rebuilt at certain things. I mean, we're trying to rebuild a society to get kids back to school, right? We're trying to rebuild the society to get fans back to sporting events. We're trying to rebuild the society to get people back to church. We're trying to rebuild the society to get people who can, who can go back to a restaurant, right? We're trying to do all of these things, right? Not to mention the rebuilding that some of you are going through just at a personal level. I'm trying to rebuild my life after my marriage fell apart. I'm trying to rebuild my life after a relationship fell apart. I'm trying to rebuild my life after I've lost my job and I'm on financial hard times. I'm trying to rebuild my life after an addiction took everything I had because of my inability to control it. Rebuilding is something that we all, all have to go through at times. The question is, how do we do it? And so we've been talking through this concept of rebuilding by using the story of Nehemiah. It's a really simple story. A guy hears about his home country that he's never been to. He's so moved in a way that the next thing you know, he's back in that town, a hundred or 500 plus miles away from where he's serving the king. And he's rebuilding a wall. And that's the story in a nutshell. And here's the question that I've asked every week as I studied this. Why did Nehemiah go back? This city, Jerusalem, endured a battle and a siege where, where an enemy army surrounded it for two years. So for two years, the supply lines were cut off to this city, Jerusalem. Nothing could come in and nothing could go out. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army waited around Jerusalem with their army, basically cutting off all life support to this community. It took two years and finally it fell. And Babylon walked in, destroyed Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground, took all the gold and all the bronze and all the artifacts and destroyed the wall and left it in rubbles and took the people out. 
That event that tore down those walls happened 140 years before Nehemiah acted on it. He'd never seen it. He'd never even been to Jerusalem. Born and raised in captivity, the man had never been there. And my question has always been, why did Nehemiah go? I read the book multiple times. God didn't call him there. Nowhere in the book does it say God called Nehemiah to Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked the question of visitors that came from Jerusalem. It was Nehemiah that said, what, what's happening back in Jerusalem? And all they did was give an answer and he ended up crying. So the question was, why did he go? And this is what I truly believe is the reason that Nehemiah went and why we can learn from this today. And that's found in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So if you guys don't mind standing, let's read these four verses together. I think this is the reason that Nehemiah went. I think, I think Nehemiah gives us the reason in his opening prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, We've acted... Very wickedly towards you. This is Nehemiah praying his prayer of confession and repentance. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Right? Here's the part of his prayer that makes me believe this is why he went. He's telling this to God. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying this. If... This is God giving instruction to Moses and Nehemiah reminding God of it. If you're faithful, I will, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, of which all of Israel was, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah says, they are your servants and these are your people whom you redeemed or rescued by your great strength and your mighty hand. You can be seated. Listen, I think the reason that Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem wasn't because he cried. It wasn't because he wept and mourned for days. I think the reason he went back to Jerusalem was because of that promise. Because see, this is the third group of people that have gone back to Jerusalem after an enemy army came in and wiped them out, and destroyed their city and moved them out. The first one came under, Jer- under Jerubbabel. The second wave of people came as you read the book of Ezra. And here's what the group of people that went with Ezra did. They rebuilt the temple of God. Right in the middle of Jerusalem, the temple that Babylon had destroyed by fire, they rebuilt the temple. Now, it didn't look like Solomon's temple. As a matter of fact, when it was, when it was finally finished, some of the people cried. It was so pitiful. Some of the people cried because it was just great to have a temple back in the place. Sort of like you would feel if somebody came along and burnt our church to the ground. If we rebuilt it and it didn't look like this, some of you would cry because, oh, what we have lost. And some of you would cry because, oh my goodness, it's great to have something because something's better than nothing, right? When Nehemiah came back, I believe he came back because the promise said, no matter how far the exiles, the people of Israel are away from the place that I call home, where I place my name, if they will return, I'll bring them back. And I believe that Nehemiah so believed in that promise that he knew the first thing he had to do was get back to Jerusalem and do his job to build the wall. Because God's not bringing, God's not bringing 
thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of Israelites back to a city that has no wall. He's not doing it. I don't believe that Nehemiah went because he was called. I don't believe that Nehemiah went because he was asked. I believe that Nehemiah went because he knew the promise that God had made to his scattered people across the globe. If you will return to me, I'll bring you home. And I think Nehemiah decided that promise is going to happen. I better get back there and I better do something. And here's why I believe it. Because I think there is evidence to suggest that it was the promise that motivated Nehemiah. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a quick look at what I believe are evidences that point to the proof that Nehemiah believed in the promise. And here's the question for all of you and all of you watching online. Here's the question for me. God makes so many promises to us in this book. And the question is this, is there really any evidence in our lives to suggest that we believe in those promises? Is the only evidence of our belief in those promises just words? Or is there something you can see that another person would say, I know you believe in that particular promise. I believe with all of my heart that Nehemiah's life showed shows that evidence is there if you truly believe in a promise. So let's look at them. There's five. I want to get through them real quick. I told my buddy I had five of them. He said, how long are you going to preach? <laughs> right? So that depends on, on you participating. Everybody go with that? If you don't participate, I'm going to talk till I feel like you're getting it. Right? So every once in a while, you got to say, you know, I got it. Right? So, and you got, <laughs> thanks, Marie. Right. Here's the first evidence. First evidence of Nehemiah believing in this promise was in his prayer request. Listen to what Nehemiah 1 verse 11 says. Nehemiah praying after reminding God of the promise. Here's his request. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king, because I was cupbearer to the king. Listen, you want to know why I believe that Nehemiah acted on a promise he truly believed? Because he was not afraid to ask God in his prayer for great success in front of the strongest, most powerful being on the face of the planet to let him go back and rebuild the wall of a place that had been destroyed as a potential enemy. I believe his great request proves and shows evidence of the promise. Why else would Nehemiah have the courage to ask God to give him success before the king of Persia? Babylon had destroyed Israel and Persia had destroyed Babylon. This man was mighty and his law and decrees were final. And here's what Nehemiah's request is. God, I'm going to ask you to give me success in front of this man, the king. I think his prayers suggested he believed in the promise. Because here's what I know. The more you believe in the promises of God, the more outlandish your prayers become. We pray silly things like this. God, be with me. Do you know that God's always with you? The Bible says God's spirit dwells in you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Why ask God for something he's already promised to do? Because we don't always believe the promise. 
Do you know how your words change when you believe the promise? They change to where you're willing to ask for anything. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to throw these up at David and he's going to look for them. So Ephesians chapter 3 is, is a powerful in verse 20 and 21. This is, this is a clear indication. These verses are whether we believe in God's promises or not. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. We get a great promise of God. And here's the thing. If we truly believe in these words, there will be evidence of such because these words are powerful in their promise. And I'm dragging this out as they try to find these verses. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. David, you getting them? Everybody cheer for David. (laughs) David, right? All right, well, he's looking it up. I'm just going to read it to you. And you can catch up. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, there they are, says this. To him who is able, listen to this, it's a promise. To him who is able to do, everybody say it with me. Immeasurably. You know what that means? Above what you could measure. Immeasurably what? More. So not just above what you could measure, but immeasurably more. So, so much more than what you could measure than all we could what? Ask or? So whatever we could ask or imagine to ask God, he's able to do immeasurably more than that according to his power that is at work where? Here's the question. Do you believe in that promise? Oh, you say you do. But have you tested it in your prayer request? Have you, have you asked? Have you asked? Trusting in a God who gives immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine according to the power that works when you have us? Or are you praying things like this? God, I just pray that you'll be with me. God, thank you for the food. Bless this meal. And listen, there's a place for gratitude. Please don't, mis- don't mistake what I'm saying. There's a place for gratitude in our prayer. But if you believe in the promise of God that he does immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine, are your prayers reflected that you believe that promise or are just your words when asked, do you believe in that verse? I think, I think Nehemiah's prayer, this massively huge prayer suggested that he believed in the promise enough to not let his prayers be small. I think if you truly believe in the promises of God, your prayers will stop being small. I think you'll pray them over and over again. You don't have to look this one up, but 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says this, pray continually. Right? And so many times we pray continually, but our prayers are so small as if the God of the universe is so small. Or listen, don't, and, and don't do this. God's got more important things to worry about than me. I mean, I, I heard that this week. Somebody told me that this week. Oh, God's got more important things to worry about than me. Really? God was so consumed with you that before the foundation of the world was set, he appointed Jesus to die on a cross for you. From eternity past, the focal point of God's redemptive plan has always been you. And you say, well, I don't want to ask God because he's got more important things to do. No, he doesn't. You are the most important thing in the world to him. Your children are the most important thing in the world to him. Your grandchildren are the most important thing in the world to him. Stop saying God's got more important things to do. Like what? 
Nothing in the world is more important to God's redemptive story than the people that Jesus came to save. Do you believe the promise? Pray like you do. Don't, don't hesitate. I don't want to get stuck there, right? Second evidence. You see, you see the evidence of Nehemiah's belief in the promise in his response to fear. Listen, what a, what an appropriate topic for the world that we live in today, right? And what's so stupid is we, we do, we do stupid things like this, right? Listen, let's all be clear here. Everybody online, everybody here. COVID-19 is real. Can we all disagree with that? Let's just stop talking about whether it's real or not. People have died because of COVID-19. Oh, but the numbers are inflated and blah, 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 blah. All right. Okay, let's stop talking politics and let's start talking truth. People, people get COVID-19 and some of them get really, really sick and some of them don't get sick at all. And some of them live and some of them die. So let's stop the nonsense about that and realize that because there's something in the world that there is no cure for yet, that people have fear, right? That fear, you can argue, well, it's legitimate, it's not legitimate. Listen, I'm a Jesus follower and I believe in my eternal existence in a heaven that's coming right back here and I can't wait, but I don't want to die today. And every once in a while, I'm a little afraid about it, right? Sometimes when I'm driving on a road and some morons coming toward me crossing the center line, I get a little afraid, right? Every once in a while, when I wake up in the morning and there's a strange, there's a strange pain in me, I'm convinced I got cancer, right? And I get a little afraid, right? Listen, we all deal with that stuff, but here's what I know. If you truly believe in God's promises, your response to fear will be different. It'll be different. Listen to what happened. Listen to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 9. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever and why should my face not look sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That didn't mean anything. That didn't mean anything to Artaxerxes, right? It meant everything to Nehemiah. So the king said to me, the king, the most powerful man in the known world said, what is it you want? Nehemiah took a moment and offered up a really quick prayer to the God of the heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servants found favor. What did he ask God for? He asked God for favor. If the if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when you will you, when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And then it goes on and on and on. But here's what happened. You read it, you heard it. Nehemiah was afraid, right? He was afraid before the king. Listen, as the cupbearer to the king, it was not, it was not the cupbearer's right to ask the king for anything. It was against the royal decree to be sad in the 
presence of the king. You could have been killed by the royal decree for just being sad in the presence of the king. And not only was Nehemiah sad, he had to ask a favor of the man who was his boss, who treated his enemies and destroyed them like he did Babylon. He had to ask him to let him go back and rebuild the wall of a potential enemy. And the Bible says he was afraid. Listen, let's just, let's just say this. Everybody has fear. Amen? We all have it. It isn't the absence of fear that determines how faithful you are. What determines your faithfulness and your trust in a promise is what kind of power do you give the fear in your life? Because when you trust in a promise, you don't give in to that fear, right? Listen, you can go to the doctor and if you've got an ache and a pain and they take all kinds of tests and they say this, you're fine. And when you leave the doctor's office, it's easy for me to tell whether you believed him or not. Because you leave the doctor and oh, you're a hypochondriac. Oh, I don't think you got it right. I think you missed it, right? Listen, the reality is you know whether or not there's evidence of believing in that promise. Nehemiah had fear, rightly so. Some of you have fear of COVID. Some of you have fear of, of, of dying. Some of you have fear of your relationship failing. Some of you have a fear that you'll never find somebody. Some of you fear that the best part of your life is already over. Some of you have all kinds of fears. And listen, fear isn't illegitimate based on the circumstances, but giving it more power than God's promises is always a sin. It's always a sin. Nehemiah's response to his fear proves to me he believed in the promise more than his fear. Listen, I want to I want to read I want to read one verse to you. It's First John four, David. First John four. We're going to do verses sixteen and eighteen. I think if if you take any other verses away from tonight, take these verses because these verses I think for most of us, especially living in twenty twenty, fear is such a powerful thing. Fear has always been a powerful thing, but you add COVID, you add the election, you add the racial tension, you add the, you add the fears of being a black person in this world today, you add the fears of, of, of Republicans and Democrats, you add the fears of millennials based upon the pressure of social media. Listen, our world is ravaged by fear. Listen to what John writes. He says, so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is, everybody say it. Is love. He doesn't just love us. He is love. It's his nature. Whoever lives, listen to this, whoever lives in love lives in and God lives in them. This, this is how we love or this is how love is made complete or perfect, right? Among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we will be like who? Listen, that that's where our confidence comes from. Listen to this. Everybody read this line with me. There is no fear in. And listen, you already know that as a human being, that is a contradictory statement to the way that we are. If somebody says they love you, the first thing that happens is you get afraid. Because what if they won't always love me? Or what if they won't love me tomorrow? Or what if they won't love me if I do this? There is always fear in love. Always. Here's what he says. There is no fear in love, but perfect. Everybody say perfect, perfect, complete, mature love drives out fear because fear has to do with what? Punishment, loss, pain, 
The one who fears is not made complete in love. Listen, I know this, that people who love Jesus get afraid. And we've got to stop telling those people to stop being afraid. And start telling them, don't let your fear have power over your faith in God's promises. He says, don't worry about your life or what you'll eat or what you drink because you're so much more important than all of those things. Instead, he says, seek God first and God will take care of all that. Do you believe in that promise? Oh, you say you do. But how often are you afraid because you don't know what's around the corner or what's going to happen next? And God says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough. Today has enough concerns of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. And yet how many of you say, oh, I believe that. And then you spend most of your time worrying about tomorrow. I got an appointment. I've got a meeting. I've got this to deal with. I got, and you're worried. I didn't, how are you? I didn't sleep at all last night. I was worried sick about today. And then you come to church. Somebody says, do you believe in that promise? You're like, oh, amen. Where's the evidence of the belief? Because a promise a promise that you believe in always produces evidence. Always. Amen, church? Listen, it's 732. And I've got three more brilliant points to share, okay? Just kidding. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop right here. Because listen, I can tell you right now, you've got enough to think about with those two things. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to do the next three, right? Because here's, listen, I believe this with all of my heart. I believe with this with every bit of my being that the minute we start realizing that if we truly believe in the promises of God, there will be evidence in our life of that belief. We'll stop worrying about performing so well before God and we'll focus on learning to believe in the promises of God more. We've made Christianity so, we've made Christianity forever so much about behavior modification. And if any of you have ever tried to modify your behavior, you know how difficult that can be, right? I am trying my best to lose weight. And to do it, I have to modify my behavior, which means at some point in time tonight, I have got to get my rear end off a couch and I have got to go to the gym and I've got to work out. And I know that to do that, I'm going to have to modify a behavior of mine. And you know how hard that is? That is a daily fight. Successes and failures. If that's all your Christianity is, is about behavior modification, you spend most of your time discouraged. But if you realize that your Christian life isn't, isn't about behavior modification, but about producing evidence that you believe in the veracity of God's promises, it takes a little bit of the pressure off and it gives a little bit of the peace and a little bit of the joy back. If you believe that God can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, ask yourself this, is there any evidence in my prayer life to suggest I believe that? And if you believe, if you believe that complete love cast out all fear, mature love cast out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment, loss, and pain, ask yourself this, do you believe in that promise? Or are you living a life where you're giving all the fear, all the power in all your life? You see, I think there should be evidence of our belief in the promises. The question is, for all of us, me included, is there really any evidence that we believe in God's promises? So let's pray.
And let's come back and knock these other three off next week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for promising us so much. Certainly recognize that our lives have been damaged enough by people and by circumstances to make our ability to trust hard. There are people sitting in this space and watching online who've been betrayed, been betrayed by the people who said they loved them the most because they broke a promise. There are children who've grown up to be adults who've never figured out how to regain trust in a promise because of the scars that they've been handed from childhood on. There are people across all of our spaces that just know that their life has created this, this hurdle that is so hard to overcome with you. So Lord, I pray into that tension and struggle for your Holy Spirit to tear down that hurdle, to tear down that scar tissue and heal through the power of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do this, God, create in us an absolute, unwavering belief in your promises. So that when we pray, we pray big. And when we deal with fear, we take away its power. And we show our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our enemies and our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we truly believe in you and your promises more than anything else in the world. So bless our church as they go forward the rest of this week. Remind them when they come to these crossroads, give them the strength to always, always trust in you more. Then they say they do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.